millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, I think we've decanted for long enough. It's time to sit back and enjoy Two Sharp Reds with Mark Schwarzer and Ollie Geel. Yes, welcome to another episode of the Two Sharp Reds, but a very festive episode of the Two Sharp Reds, where myself, Ollie Geel, and of course, Australia's third favourite son, and Mark Schwarzer, like to sit down and try a bottle of the Burgundy Grape. And then towards the end of the episode, we will compare that bottle of red to a player, past or present. And Mark, I've got a feeling that you and I tried some serious sharp reds over the last five days. Um, I'm not going to lie. I certainly did. Don't lie, <laughs> don't lie to me, great. Mark. Don't lie to me. I'm not, I'm not going to lie, mate. The best thing about not playing football anymore is that you don't have to worry about Christmas, you know, Christmas in terms of have I got training in the morning, have I got training in the afternoon, am I playing boxing, boxing day? Nah, forget all that. I actually cleared my diary when I'm not going to work between between uh, Christmas and literally the 2nd of January and that's it. And I'm going to enjoy this period of time. Absolutely love it. Well, my parents have been able to send me a few nice bottles of red from back home. So I've gone for a Roaring Beach Tasmanian Pinot Noir 2018. I think we, I've had potentially a Roaring Beach on this show, but it wasn't a Pinot Noir. So I'm really looking forward to trying the Pinot. I'm so jealous, mate. I want to swap. I want to actually, no, I've got a Pinot Noir as well, but I'm just so jealous because my favorite one, as you know, is from Tasmania. So I want to snap your hand off. You're lucky you're not in the same room, mate, because I would have nicked yours by now. Mind you, we'd be drinking your bottle of wine, wouldn't we? Correct, so, correct, yeah. I'm gutted. So I've, got, I've actually gone, I've gone off piece, mate. I've gone for a German Pinot Noir. Well, they don't exist, but go on. They do. Ernst uh, Lucen Pinot Noir 2018, and it's from the Faltz. So... It's, it's from a region where I played in, in Kaiserslautern. So that's why I picked this, uh, this wine. Um, and it's uh, same old stuff, you know, red fruit, balancing acidity, smooth tannins, excellent with roast chicken, which you'll be happy about. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to it. Well, we'll get to the wine very shortly, but now it's time for you to do your world famous intros. Good luck. Deep breath. Don't stuff it up. I, I'm actually surprised that you're allowing me to do this one because I thought you'd be like chomping at well, the bit. Stuff, yeah, but you also stuffed up last week as well. So I really should be doing it, I, but I know I, how I much you I didn't really. Come on, let's be honest. I didn't. I mean, I, I, I'm, I stuttered a little bit, you know, but other than that, I have been known on the other occasion to get some things wrong. I hold my hand up. We all do that. Not a problem. Anyway, this week, mate, I'm excited as well. I worked with John um, last week. Uh, John Hartson, this is, of course, famous, famous footballer, Welsh international Played for a whole host of clubs, uh, Luton, Arsenal, West Ham, Wimbledon, Coventry, Celtic, West Brom Albion and Norwich. Got there in the end. Um, Absolute legend in the game and a top, top guy. um, And he's got one hell of a story to tell us. And I'm really excited about um, getting into this this interview, this discussion, this chat, uh, because John has got one hell of a, a story to tell. And welcome, John. Thank you, Mark. It's nice to be on with you, mate. 
Yeah, really looking forward to this, mate. I mean, like I said, you got when well, you got one unbelievable, well, many lots, of, many unbelievable stories to tell. Let's be honest. Um, let's let's just start firstly with football. Um, you know, you broke a number of records along the way. Firstly, the most expensive British record transfer fee paid for a teenager at the time, and two and a half million pounds by Arsenal. And as it went on through your career records were broken by clubs in, in terms of transfer fees. And you did it with four different clubs throughout your career, Arsenal, West Ham, Wimbledon. And then when you moved to Celtic um, and kind of was probably the most successful period in your time in your history. What was that like as a 19 year old joining Arsenal, the Arsenal, as people know them and for two and a half million pounds, which was insane amount of money. Well, to be honest with you, Mark, well, I think when you're young, and particularly when I was only 19, I'd, I'd started at Luton and I was only young. I'd only just turned professional. I started at Luton on a, on a YTS scheme, like a scholarship, they call it now today. And the YTS scheme was £29.50 a month. That's what it was. And in those days, we used to clean the stands. We used to clean. We used to be um, designated with, with two professionals that would have to clean their boots, go down to the laundry, before they arrived at the training ground, we'd have to hang up their, their training kit on their peg, uh, make sure their boots were there, you know, where they sat. And it's not like that now. The government have changed all the, um, all, all the different systems, has all changed in terms of the younger lads don't clean boots now, they don't clean the stands, they don't go around with a black bag, picking up all the, the burger wraps and all the drinks from the game at the weekend. And the stands used to be filthy, you know, and as apprentices, that's what we used to do. So we, we used to earn our £29.50, by the way. Um, <laughs> so I went from Luton to Arsenal and I was quite a boisterous kid, I've got to say. And uh, when you're young, I, I think you, um, you don't take it in too much. And um, I always felt like that until I retired. And I say to, I say to young lads now, try and... Think of the good memories. Think of the big wins. You know, embrace them at the time when you're doing it because your career uh, just it's, it's my career is gone in a blink of an eyelid. And it's great to look back at some wonderful memories and, and things that went well and things that didn't go so well. But in terms of what it was like, it, it happened really, really quickly. Uh, one minute I'm, I'm playing on the weekend for Luton Town in the Championship which against Barnsley and uh, David Pleat, the Luton Town manager, called me into his office and said that um, the club had received a bid from George Graham, the Arsenal manager, um, for £2.5 million. But at that particular time, I was linked with several different clubs. I think Liverpool um, sent a scout to watch me. Uh, Manchester City sent, but it wasn't the Manchester City that we're seeing nowadays, you know. Um, but it, it happened very, very quickly, and, and um, I, I was literally ready for it. You know, it, it wasn't a shock, it wasn't a surprise, it was something that I was scoring goals for Luton, and it just happened naturally. And all, one minute I'm at Luton Town Football Club, next minute I'm signing for Arsenal under George Graham, and, and then the next day, George, I remember George Graham saying to me, he said, John, if you sign for me today, son, he said, uh, Alan Smith has turned his knee this morning in training with the great Alan Smith. He won two golden boots at Arsenal, smudger. There's the sky commentating now and everything, co-commentating. He said, Kevin Campbell has pulled his hamstring. He said, if you sign this contract today, son, I'm 19 years of age. He says, you play out there on Highbury with the current England centre-forward, who was, of course, Ian Wright. 
So I quickly signed the contract, made my <laughs> debut. Uh, we drew the game 1-1 with Everton. I remember big Gun- uh, Duncan Ferguson got sent off. Um, That's, a That's a shock. That's a shock he got sent off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and my, my big mate from Wales, Neville Southall, you know, the great goalkeeper, yeah. he was playing goal for, for Everton that day. But as I said, it was just something that just happened out of the blue. It was a wonderful moment for me on a personal level. But I just took it in my stride because I was very, I was really, really young. You know, when you're 17, 18, you're still a child. You, you don't know anything at that age, really. We think we know everything, but we really don't. We haven't lived, you know, I hadn't lived up until then. It was all just going out and playing football and expressing myself. And it was just, a, when you look back at it, it was such a massive moment. You know, I became Britain's most expensive teenager in the history of football at that particular time. Um, you know, 25 years ago, 1995. And uh, as I said, it was a fantastic experience. And then um, we went on a great run uh, while I was there. Uh, Dennis Bergkamp joined the club, Patrick Vieira. Um, so it was wonderful to play with these great players. It, it was England back four, almost. It was Seaman in goals, Dixon, Adams, Boldy or, or Martin Keogh, Nigel Winterburn, Merson, Parler. Bergkamp, Limpa, Jensen, right, you know, it, was, it really was a team of superstars and I come as a, as a young pup, if you like, from Luton, but I got into the team and, um, you know, I had some decent performances while I was there. Do any of these guys treat you differently because of the price tag? I can sort of imagine at that time, they, they, perhaps? Ollie, they were fine with me, they were fine with me actually, and, you know, a couple of them took me under their wing as well, you know, and it was the era of the, the Tyson um, Holyfield and Buster Douglas and, and Lennox Lewis. That was the era, the big boxing, you know, the massive fights they have in Vegas. And we used to have sort of, uh, I'd get a few invites over to the players' houses and we'd get a big Chinese and we'd stay up till three o'clock and watch the big fights. And everybody was great. It was, it was, it was quite a really close-knit group. And... Uh, as, as you know, where there was, there was quite a big drinking culture at the, at the club at the time. Um, Tony Adams came out and admitted at that particular time I was there that, uh, that he was an alcoholic and he needed help from the players. Um, Tony went into a priory. I think Paul Merson also attended a priory. And apart from them two, there were was, was several other lads who, who, who enjoyed a liquid lunch, as they called it. And, um, but that was the culture. That's the way it was. I'm sure the whole, that was going on at many clubs. You know, Arsenal were no different. It's just that publicly we had a few massive players. England, you know, England captain Tony Adams, Paul Merson, who was a magnificent player. Um, it was more. It became more public knowledge than than what was going on maybe at other clubs. But I've no doubt at that particular time because all the science and all the the, the, the sports and the nutrition and the food and the fitness, it's all changed now for the good, actually. It's all changed. Sure. Um, and it certainly changed that Arsenal when, when Arsene Wenger came in um, to replace Bruce Rioch, actually, it was who he replaced. That all changed there. And Arsene came in, um, everything changed the diet, the, the stretching after, after, after training sessions. Everything was done to the point we would do a tactical drill. We would do one one day physical. Um, everything was just more organised, more structured, and um, and that's when uh, you look at the lads. Now you ask the likes of Lee Dixon, Tony, Paul Merson, Wrighty. 
they will now tell you that Arsene Wenger was absolutely brilliant for their careers because they tuned in to what he, he want, how, how he wanted them to eat, how he wanted them to live, um, you know, live their lives in terms of the preparation and everything else. And they will admittedly now, them players would say, Arsene Wenger put two or three years on top of our careers. And they became really successful towards the end of their careers, the Invincibles. You know, that back four was in its 30s when they became Invincibles. You know, Tony Adams and Dixon and Seaman. And uh, thanks to Arsene Wenger, they, they tuned in to what he wanted. Uh, they respected him so much that, uh, that they had fantastic success when he arrived at the club. All right, he brought in Overmars and he brought in Henri and, as I said, Vieira. Uh, Lundberg, all these guys made a huge difference, Petit, um, and they were very, very su successful, especially early on in Arsene Wenger's tenure, that first seven or eight years of his 24 years, I think that's when they were most successful. Uh, John, do you, you know, you look back at that time, so 97, February 97, you moved to West Ham, so, and Wenger wanted you to stay, so knowing, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, do you wish you could have had that over again? Would you have stayed longer? Well, that's a good question, Mark, because um, <clears throat> I found myself out of the team when Bergkamp came, when Dennis arrived. And he, he, Bruce Rioch signed Dennis Bergkamp for £7.5 from Inter Milan. And him and Wrighty were fabulous together at one stage. Me, me and Wrighty played up top many times with Dennis in behind, you know, as that on a, in the tip of the diamond, if you like. Um, just in behind the strikers, we we did that. We played that role many a times, but generally, Arsene Wenger wanted to play um, like a, a four-four-two. If you like, he, he liked wingers. He liked wingers. Uh, and when Thierry Henry came to the club initially, he started wide left, and he used to like cutting inside. And then Dennis would drop off into that hole, and he would find them with that perfect way to pass. So I, I found myself um, out of the team for a while. And I was 21 years of age. I was found myself out of the team to write the and Dennis Bergkamp, who arguably were two of the best at that time, you know. And, and, and with me, I wanted to play. I wasn't happy training all week. I'm picking up my wages. I was on decent wages there. And then I always think train in the week and you peak on a weekend. Yep. I didn't want to waste my career. I had Mark Hughes, Dean Saunders, Ian Rush for the Welsh national team. They were all 10 years older than me. And my, my view always was um, you pick players on merit. If players are on form, you pick them players. That, that's why I always thought with the national team anyway. And I was scoring goals. I was scoring goals before I came out of the team um, under Arsene Wenger. But he, he just decided to play with them too. And he called me into his office one day. I was linked with several clubs. You're always linked with moves if you're out of the team and everything. And Harry Redknapp was, was, um, was obviously a big admirer. He wanted me to go to West Ham. They were desperate for goals. Um, and they were languishing down the bottom of the Premier League. And I had Harry, my agent, you know, on to me about moving and this. I had three years left on my contract. I signed in 95. This was 97. Yeah. I signed a five-year deal under George Graham. So I thought to myself, I want to play. But Arsene Wenger actually said to me, look, John, he said, I'd really like you to stay here, son, because you have two of the very best in front of you right now, but you will get opportunities. Your next man in 
if anything happens to any of these two in terms of injury or suspensions or anything else, your next man in. I'm not looking to sign, you will play. But then I've got Harry and I've got my agent, West Ham, great club, East End of London. And Harry's saying, you play every week. I'll build my team around you at West Ham. You know, we're desperate for goals. I'm signing Paul Kitson, who's coming from Newcastle. I'm signing Stevie Lomas, who's coming from Manchester City. Um, and basically, I just made my mind up to leave. But with hindsight, in 1998, Arsenal won the double. You know, and I, I'd left for West Ham just before yeah. that, just at the back of 1997. So, I, look at Ollie laughing in the background. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking with the way that it's amazing the way football works because oh. I have dreams of me clinging onto Wenger's shoes going, can I please just buy you a cup of tea? And here he is saying, yeah. please stay. But it's just amazing how, you know, just the, the fabric of, uh, you know, the way that it all turns out it's amazing yeah I know and lots of people ask me this and it's it's not really a regret because I went and I scored goals and we stayed up that year went to West Ham we did remarkably well the whole team you know young Rio was coming through Frank Joe, Joe Cole Michael Carrick these great players after the youth team were coming through at West Ham eventually went on to play in the first team and then had fantastic moves um, you know but as I said it's not really a regret because I think you, you, you do things at the time that you think is right and as I said, I went on to do very well at West Ham for, for a good period of time. But I often think back, you know, I could have been sitting there with a double winner's medal, you know, after there in my cabinet with a few other little things I won, blah, blah, blah. Um, but no, as I said, uh, it was a great time at Arsenal. And obviously they brought in Anelka, they brought in Henri then, and they went on to win the double in 98. And I left in 97 with three years left on my deal. But I'm not too sure whether I'd been happy. I don't know you're like, Mark, if you've spent much time, you know, second to, to, to another top goalkeeper. I was itching to play. Yeah. I was really wanting to play. And I don't get, I don't get lads who are quite happy to sign three or four-year deals, pick up their money, um, have their big fancy cars, and play 12 games a season. That, that is a waste of a career. That is a waste of... Yeah, you, you pick up money and you, everything else. You get the houses and you get the future and everything else. You, you're well looked after financially. But when you finish your career, I can look back and say, well, I played 400 games. You know, I did this, I played for that club. And I played. I featured. Yeah. I didn't just yeah. go to the club. And I, I was second, you know, in, in terms of going into the side. So that was always my... Um, what I always wanted to do was I wanted to play. And to my credit, I left a huge club with a huge opportunity to win trophies, to go and play football. And I think, you know, lots of people would, 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 would commend me for that, you know, rather than vilify the fact that I left and I, I had the opportunity. But, you know, would I have played much if then players would have come in? Probably not. I'd have probably been in and out. And I went in and I played every single game for West Ham. So, you know, looking back, um, you know, sometimes I think about it, but then again, I think, well, you know, you can't get too downbeat about things. I, I acted the way I did at the time because that's what I thought was right. Yeah, I mean, listen, we can all look back at our careers and pick moments where you may have done it another way and things would have been very different. I was the same. 2008, I had a chance to sign for Bayern Munich or Juventus or Fulham. And I signed for Fulham because at Bayern and Juve, I was not going to sign as a number one. I was going to be number two. And at Bayern in particular, 
the goalkeeper that played, played the first three months, was out of the team, didn't play. The, the guy that they brought in played. They got to the Champions League final. They won the German, German Bundesliga title. So in hindsight, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But I still don't regret going to Fulham. But you're right. Um, it's about playing. And I much prefer to play week in, week out than, than sit there and be number two. I want to talk West Ham still. So there was a pivotal moment in your career. I mean, listen, you had a great time. Like you said, 97-98 season, 24 goals in 42 games. Um, you finished only second to Andy Cole in the Premier League leading goal scoring table that season. But the start of the next season, things went took a turn for the worse for you. And it was, it was something that happened on the training field. Um, and I remember I was at Middlesbrough at the time and I remember seeing the footage on TV and, and, and everyone, the way that people reacted. And it was more about shock and, and wow, how did, did that really happen? Tell us, tell us what happened that day. Well, what happened was, first of all, me and Al Berkowitz, we, we were tremendous teammates. We got on really, really well. The little Israeli uh, midfield player, terrific little player, great balance, um, used to make a lot of my goals at West Ham. If you see a lot of my goals, I'll generally is slipping me in with the right way to pass. He was a nice guy, you know, he was a really nice cultured midfielder at Isle and a nice lad as well. And it was never personal. Um, and what happened was we both went out to training and uh, John Moncur, little midfield player for West Ham, he rolled the ball into me and the defender almost come around the side and nicked the ball and John shouted at me, come on, John, get hold of the ball, get a hold of it. And I sort of snapped. I was running away with the ball and as I tackled him from behind, I've gone to pick him up and then he's, he's just thrown like a little lame arm which hit me in the, in the thigh and then the rest is history. You can clearly see what I did. Um, and it was totally wrong. It was the wrong reaction. Um, uh, it, it's it's one major regret of my career that, that I wish I hadn't have done it. I wish I hadn't have reacted that way. Um, and I immediately apologised. I immediately got put up in front of the FA. I got fined £20,000 and banned uh, for three games. And the, the press reaction to it was unbelievable. I was front page of every national newspaper, not just in this country, but other countries. And I had to leave to Fr- I had to leave to go to France. I left my home because the, the press were almost camping outside my set up tents and everything at the back of my house. Um, and it, it was just they were just on me for every little move. Or they went down to my parents' house in Swansea and they were knocking my parents' house in Wales and asking what was I like. And they, they were just trying to turn me around from being this monster of a character. And um, and just doing what press generally do. But almost, you know, I brought it on myself, you know. Um, and, and I'm not trying to get out of it in any sort of way. But it was, a, it was a mobile phone. This wasn't Sky Sports. It was a mobile phone that filmed that incident from the side of the pitch. And then that person, whoever he was, decided then to sell it to the newspapers. And it just went viral from there. Um, so I went to Wimbledon after West Ham and there was, you know, there's a fracas on the pitch every day. You know, two players would come face yeah. to face or, you know, um, you know, there'd be two lads going up against each other. There'd be people kicking each other. There'd be fights on the side, everything else. Um, so I'm not trying to defend what happened in any way, Mark. 
it happened and it was completely the wrong reaction because yes, I was physical and I was young, I was boisterous, I was aggressive, but I never elbowed people off the ball. I never went in to do people over the top. I was fair and I was aggressive and I backed in and, and I, I just think that that incident certainly uh, left a little bit of a, of, of, a, of a black stain over my career in terms of what I'd done up to then. You know, people thought I was a bit of a, tried to write me off and tried to ruin my career, if you like. Um, but as I said, I immediately apologised. I don't know to this day why I reacted in the way that I did. Um, and as I said, it, it, it's something that has followed me around, really, around in my career. You know, I went on and I broke the record at Wimbledon. Then I went up to Celtic and scored 100 goals. I represented my country. Um, and I always felt that when people spoke about John Hartson, they almost went, oh, John Hartson, yeah, good player, yeah, decent, sent forward, nice touch, you know, good lad, honest, blah, 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 good company. But, you see that? Remember what he did? And it's always gone before me, if you like. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I always think that people like to talk about the the bad things. You know, there's always like something, you know, people like to revel in other people's mistakes and, you know, they, they tend to take a little bit of an enjoyment out of it, if you like. You know, um, you look at Roy Keane, for instance. Roy, a magnificent player, came to Celtic on loan. People talk about Roy Keane and they go, or what about Roy when uh, he, you know he left? He left his country out in Saipan, and you know, and then the tackle on Alf Ingerhal, and they like to bring up the negativity. And I, I always felt that that's what I get. You know, not John Hartson who scored over two hundred goals in his career and played with some of the biggest clubs in the country and played with these unbelievable players. It's like, oh, what about that? But you can't stop people talking and gossiping, and it's there for everybody to see. But. I put it on record many a times that um, it was an unsavoury incident and I totally brought it on myself and I take full responsibility for, for those actions. Um, I've since met up with Alberkovic several times. Wales played Israel a couple of years ago in a, in a, a European Championships sort of qualifier, a group, um, the qualifiers, and I, I came out of the hotel in, in Israel um, and I was walking down the street one morning, the lads, I was just, when I was assistant manager of Wales under Chris Coleman, we were playing Israel away and um, in Tel Aviv, I think it was. And as I was coming out of my hotel, I went around the corner and I was just having a cup of coffee on my own. Next thing, Alberkovic is sitting there and there's a lot of cameras there. So unbelievable. It just happened to be, you know, they must have guessed, they must have guessed I was in the hotel around the corner almost followed me, if you like. Um, and then the next thing, me and I are on the chat, and the cup of tea and a little biscuit, and then the cameras, and we had our arms around each other. And they made a massive story. It was all over the papers in, in Israel that, that for the next couple of days, you know. Um, so I've no doubt that that was set up by somebody. But, uh, you know, I've been in his company many times. He came to Glasgow because he was ex-Celtic as well. Yes. He did some filming and stuff. So there was never an issue there. There's never an issue now. But it's just, uh, it's something that, you know, I wish that didn't happen. Um, and I regretted it, you know, reacting the way that I did. But, um, you know, that, that, that's exactly how it went. Mate, these things happen, as we all know, you know, and, and sometimes you can, be, you can be set up for the rest of your life and, and reminded forever. But 
the best thing you can do is hold your hand up like you've done and, and, and admit you made a mistake and, and let your, let the rest of your career do its talking. And, and, and it certainly has, you know, I mean, you mentioned going to Wimbledon, you broke another record there for club record signing seven and a half million. Unfortunately, you struggled a bit with injuries. You weren't able to stay in the league, got relegated. Um, and, and, and you, you had a lot of injuries throughout your career, didn't you? I mean, your back was one of your injuries problems. I mean, you, you're having a, a knee reconstruction soon. Was that also something that hampered you throughout your career, your knee? Well, I failed four medicals, Mark, during my yeah. career. I failed a big medical at Spurs. It was, um, it was George Graham who'd already signed me at Arsenal. George had gone and managed Spurs. Uh, Alan Sugar was, was, the, um, was the chairman and David Pleat was the CEO of uh, the chief executive of, of Spurs. And they bid, I think it was £7 million pounds for me uh, while I was at um, Wimbledon. And I failed a medical on my knee. Also, I failed a medical with Glasgow Rangers. I went up to Ibrox, um, completed a medical. Something again showed up on my knee, which I'd had an operation with when I was at Wimbledon. Um, Charlton, Alan Kirbisley, I went and spent the day with Alan Kirbisley, failed the medical. And then I went and um, had some games and uh, trials with Coventry and the Golden Strachan. And they tried to sign me. Initially, I failed the medical. So I failed four medicals. up oh, wow. about 25. Um, but eventually then, uh, Golden Strachan, they did some sort of deal. We went up then to do pre-season the following season at St. Andrews in, in uh, university, um, uh, just up in Scotland there where the, where the old, old course is, the golf, St. Andrews University. And uh, Martin O'Neill phoned me while I was on that pre-season. I said, look, John, I'd love to bring you to Celtic. And this is previously to fail in the four medicals. He says, I'm going to sign you. He says, unless you've got a hole in your heart, he says, I'm going to sign you. <laughs> He says, I, I know all about your medical history. I've spoken to Terry Burton at Wimbledon. You're doing all the training. You're doing all the running. You're doing everything expected of you. He said, so, you know, there's always risks when you sign players, especially for big money, you know, because it's six million as a fee. And then it's whatever else then as a, as a whole package, it adds up. And, you know, it's the manager and, and, the, and the physio, uh, the doctor who who then have to take responsibility if I only play six games and break down. You know, it's a huge layout for the football club. So there was a lot of pressure. But then I went and signed for Celtic, um, played in a fa- fantastic team, um, played over 200 games while I was at Celtic Park and played in cup finals and won trophies and uh, had a wonderful time in Glasgow. Um, so the, the, the injuries mounted up. I threw back operations. I had operations on my knee. We've not gone into my health history with the cancer yet that spread to my lungs and onto my brain, which left me fighting for my life. And I was in the hospital for six weeks and I had to enter into a chemotherapy program when I left hospital, which thankfully, you know, um, I managed to come through that. So, yeah, I, I had a few injuries, but, but only up until, you know, I was 24, 25. And I think sometimes the way that I played as well, you know, I'm jumping up there against two big Six foot three centre halves, Razor Ruddock, and these type of people, Steve Bruce, Gary Palace, Colin Hendry, these guys. And, you know, you're getting smashed every week and you're giving as good as you get. You get a knee in your side, you get a knee in the back, and you're giving it, you know, you're doing the same to them and they're hitting you, hitting you back in terms of, you know, coming off you. And I wasn't this little tricky winger that never put his foot into a cold bath, you know. I was somebody that was <laughs> right in there, you know, throwing my head in where the boots were and things like that. 
playing against Tony Adams and, and, and Martin Keown every day in training. It's the way I played, maybe, you know, it's physical, 15 and a half stone. It was, uh, you know, so I'd be surprised if I hadn't picked up any injuries. I was always going to end my career with, with issues with my, uh, you know, with my body and stuff like that. But um, as I said, I give as good as I got anyway. What physically happens when you fail a medical? Because when we see a medical happen now, you know, people to see, I mean, certainly from what they film and release, you know, you're going on a nice run, check the, the heart pressure and the beats and things like that. But do you find out there and then, or is it almost like a, a school report? Like, do you get something sent home and goes, yeah, sorry, mate. Or, or yeah, what, what's the, what are the logistics of failing? Well, ultimately it's down to the doctor. A doctor, when you go to a club, um, you will initially, you'll initially sit on a table uh, or on a bed and they would, you know, go around your body, feel your ankles and they'd they'd have a look at your knee situation. They'd ask you to bend over, you know, do your hips and things like that. And then you would generally go off to a hospital where you would have um, a a scan, an x-ray, where they would x-ray from your... Interestingly enough, they don't x-ray the brain. Yeah. That's one thing they don't do, uh, which maybe that's another, Funny, that's sure. yeah. you know, because I'm sure that, you know, I don't know, but I'm just guessing. Um, and then you would have an x-ray scan, like a CT scan of everything in your body. And it would show up everything. It would show up any previous operations, any scar tissue, any lingering um, sort of cartilage, you know, cartilage close to the bone or worn down or whatever. Problems where you hit anything. It'll show anything. Now, there's always a risk signing players, in particular goalkeepers. Mark might know this because goalkeepers are on the floor, off the floor. Their discs at the back, they might be, some of them might be all over the place. Might not look good on a seat, on a scan. Sure. Whereas if Mark said to you, if you said to Mark or a goalkeeper, how do you feel? I feel fantastic. I train every day. I don't have any problems. I'm fine. I'm no problem. Look at the scan. Looks, looks bad. Yeah, and when they were when they were scanning an X-ray in my knee, although I was fine, I was striking the ball. I was doing the sprints, the little small little bursts, the shuttle runs, and everything else. Getting through games, there was something showing on my knee, which medically, the doctors would look at it and go, "That that knee's no that knee's poor," and I'm paying six million pounds for this player. How can I take this risk? And that happened four times. Was it the same knee. thing? Was it always the same knee? Same thing. It was my left knee. It was my left yep. knee. And uh, I'd had a little small arthroscopy, um, like laser operation, while I was at Wimbledon, just a tidy up sort of job. Um, but then Martin took that, that chance, Martin O'Neill, and I ended up playing 220-odd games for Celtic. Never once put a packet of ice on that knee, albeit I had two back operations during that time. You know, But arguably... That, that was a big risk from Martin O'Neill because if you look at your record prior to that, you were in another side with various injuries. So you, you, you missed games. Like when I signed for, for Fulham, I was at Middlesbrough for 12 and a half years. I, I've got two bulging discs in my back. You've had various breaks and so forth. Breaks are not such a big issue, but the bulging discs on a CT scan can be a big issue, like you mentioned with a goalkeeper. But then together with your record, how many games you missed, how many training sessions you've missed, that is, is, is a true and honest way to, to actually make that decision. So for Martin O'Neill, that was, a, that was kind of a, 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 a fairly big risk for him, wasn't it? Based it off was, the fact of was. the games you played. 
It was, and I ended up playing a lot of games for Celtic, probably more games than what they anticipated me playing. I played over 220 games. If you look at the, yep. the Google appearances, I think it's 220 or whatever it is, um, league and cup games over a five-year period. And I missed a year because I had two back operations. Yep. And it's interesting, Mark, you say that you got discs bulging and my discs were bulging. I had them shooting pains down my leg. Okay, yep. And then uh, what kept me out of the UEFA Cup final against Jose Mourinho's Porto in 2003 in Seville was I had a back operation and I played 12 out of 13 games during that cup run. I played Calta Vigo, we yep. played Liverpool, we played Boa Vista. We well, Liverpool was, was arguably your biggest games, wasn't it? The two yeah, Liverpool two games. Two nil yeah, away from home. We drew 1-1 at Celtic Park, went to Anfield. And you know how good Liverpool under the yep. light in Europe. They don't lose many games. And we went there on a Thursday night in the UEFA Cup and we were clapped off the pitch by the Liverpool fans. That, yeah, we, won, we won the game 2-0 and I scored that goal, which probably wasn't my best strike ever, that, that 25-yarder. You know, two goalkeepers wouldn't have stopped that. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting you mentioned the discs in the back because one of my discs burst. I had a bulge disc and it just burst. And there's no way I would have played with a with an ankle that size or if my knee would have flared up or anything, yeah. I would have just gone and played and I'd taken any injection, anything, but you know yourself when your back goes, yeah, that's it. Everything Impossible. goes through your back and uh, there was no way I could even step out onto the pitch for 10 minutes. I was waiting on an operation. I ended up having two back operations. I got a big scar of that down the bottom of my spine which kept me out for a year, but I managed to come back from that. Um, you know, so it was a big risk from Martin. It was a calculated risk, which, you know, you know, thank the Lord that uh, it was a risk that was worth taking because I came back with a lot of goals and a lot of success. Yeah, probably in a period of time where people did write you off because of the injury history, the, the, the thing that happened at West Ham. I mean, you went on during that period at Celtic. You got Welsh Football of the Year. Um, you know, you got PFA Scottish Player of the Year award, um, the SFWA Football of the Year award. You obviously won three, you know, Scottish Premier League titles, Scottish Cups, Scottish League Cups. I mean, it was an incredible, successful period of time. Um, unless you're unless you're a Celtic fan or a, yeah, or someone a fan of Scottish football, try and explain to people how big a club is Celtic. It's it's just. Um... It's something that you would have to maybe try and witness to appreciate how big it is. Because I knew Celtic were a big club, but nothing prepares you for the volume of the actual size of it. I always say to people that I can't go anywhere today, whether it's you know, to the States, to Orlando, to Florida, to, you know, to Disney, or I went to Bermuda a couple of years ago with my wife and um, I tend to go to a caravan park down in South Wales where I used to go with my mum and dad every year because I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't go abroad till I was 19 at Arsenal. First time I'd ever been abroad wow. in my life was when I was at Arsenal football. So, is that the first time you had a passport? Never, never been abroad, Mark. <laughs> um, you know, so I can't go anywhere today, anywhere in the world, without bumping into a Celtic fan. They are just everywhere. You know, Rangers are the same. Uh, two global clubs, uh, fan base, unbelievable everywhere. You go to any city in the country, they've got Celtic supporters clubs in that in that particular city. Um, and massive, you know, it's, it's the culture, it's the history. 
it's what both clubs stand for. Um, you know, I don't get into too much of the politics side of things. Um, it's Catholics and Protestants and, you know, two different, um, uh, different, different cultures, you know, politics. And I don't really get into that too much, you know. I'm not Catholic or Protestant, I'm just from Swansea, South Wales. You know, I'm not particularly, you know, I don't really get into that too much. Um, but it's, it's just something that I'm very, very proud. I, I would have signed for Glasgow Rangers. That just goes to, to show you that I've got no allegiance at that particular time. Of course, now, having spent five years at Celtic, my allegiances are firmly with Celtic now. But at that particular time, in 1999 or the year 2000, when I went for that Rangers medical, um, you know, everybody knows that if, I, if I'd gone through the, the medical, I would now be a Rangers player. And, and as it happens, um, I never got through that medical. And then I come back and play for their big rivals. And, you know, and I score lots of goals against them. So, you know, but lots of fans used to say to me, oh, John, when you score against Rangers... And I managed to get a few goals. I think it was eight to nine goals I got against them, winning goals as well. Yep. Um, run to the, you know, to the, the, the away end and sort of rub your knee, you know. But I couldn't do that. I never did that. I've never been that type of character. I, I wouldn't really, you know, uh, there's a line that you don't really cross. I, I was never one, you know, like that. And um, I just let my goals do the talking, if you like. Yep. My, my, my uh, performances... But no, they are, as I said, for me to say they're global clubs. You know, they are in, they are in the, the company of a Manchester United, of a, of a Liverpool, you know, of these type of clubs. You know, uh, the support base, Carolina, um, just Vancouver, Canada, New York. There's conventions. Australia. I went to the Perth. I went to the Perth Australian uh, Celtic Supporters Club, one of the biggest you know, Celtic supporters clubs on the planet. 500 people, you know, and I walked in there and it was like unbelievable. I travelled over to Perth last year. It was a great, great experience. I went to see the Wacker because I loved my cricket. <laughs> I was up most of the night watching India v Australia. India are going well, by the way. Oh, they are. I know. Don't mention the cricket I, right I, now. I love, I love my cricket. You know, I love all the, um, you know, Ricky Ponting. I've got to meet these guys, you know, doing BT Sport and stuff in London and, um, you know, people, people are like Shane Watson and all these guys and Gilchrist and, you know, Shane Warne, all these people. I've been blessed, really. I've met them in different places and uh, they want to talk about football and I want to talk about cricket. Um, so, no, as I said, you know, talk, going back to Australia and Celtic, you know, Celtic support, Rangers supporters club, they are too. People don't appreciate it. People don't appreciate how big these clubs are. And it's so much so, they're, they're that big. And the rivalry is so enormous. I mean, you don't live in Glasgow. And I remember you said to me like last week, it's, it's too complicated, too difficult. Well, what it is, I love Glasgow. I lived in Glasgow when I signed for Celtic. And it's a great city. It's a real vibrant city. You know, nightclubs and bars, restaurants, um, theatres. And uh, when I lived there for five years, it was great. I was playing, I was scoring goals, I was enjoying my life. I lived up by the airport. It was great. I didn't have the odd comment and things like that because it's a city that's basically, um, you know, it's, it's full of Celtic and Rangers fans when you walk into the city and you go shopping. It's not, it's not like two halves of Rangers there, Celtic there. Everybody mixes and everything else during the day. So you get little comments, basically, which you can just brush off. But 
I just felt when I was coming back up to Scotland, my wife is uh, from uh, from the from the Highlands, a place called uh, Fort William. So we just decided to come to Edinburgh because we thought we have some young children and we'd like to go into Edinburgh. And uh, it's a little bit more touristy. And, uh, you know, I might get left alone. <laughs> Possibly. But take nothing away from Glasgow. It's, it's, it plays a huge role. It's got a big place in my heart as Glasgow. Because then five years I spent living in Glasgow, playing for Celtic. It's very, very special moments. And uh, something I'll cherish for the rest of my life. But I just decided to come to Edinburgh. I hear Edinburgh is a beautiful city, which it is. We live south of Edinburgh. We've got a beautiful home in the countryside. And, and that, I'm, I'm, I'm contented with that, you know. And uh, so, you know, there was a reason why I'm in Edinburgh and not Glasgow. It's because I wanted a little bit more privacy, if you like. Mm-hmm. But not as if I was getting driven mad, as if I was getting pestered or nothing when I was in Glasgow. It's yep. just that with the youngsters now and my kids and they're very young and I respect that, you know, they they have to grow up as well and, and, and make their own lives and everything else and make their own futures. I just felt, you know, Edinburgh might be a nice place. And we've been here four and a half years now and um, we absolutely love it here. Love it in Edinburgh. It's a great city. Um, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on what you've made of Tommy Rogic's career at Celtic because... Uh, you know, myself included and a lot of Australian fans obviously like to keep in touch with how he's doing, but really only see him generally when he plays for the national team. Um, how, how have you seen him and how have Celtic fans seen him, you know, across the years that he's been there? Celtic fans idolise him. He's, uh, he's become a real hero. Uh, he scored the winning goal in the Scottish Cup final a couple of years ago yeah. um, with a cheeky little flick, a back heel flick. Tom Rogic is an outstanding football player. Uh, I think he got injured about 18 months ago, and he spent a long, long time out of the team. I think he struggled uh, to his own admission, getting himself back up to speed, because Tom was, he was somebody that used to burst into the opposition's penalty area. Great talent, good, good left foot, could make goals, could score a goal. And I think of late, he's getting back to somewhere where he was when he was playing under Brendan Rodgers uh, for Celtic. Since then, the manager has changed Neil Lennon. Um, he still comes on, still features heavily. Uh, of late, he's not started games, but I, I would imagine that the team will utilise, you know, their substitutions. There's still quite a lot way to go during this season. You know, he's an Australian international. He has to cope with the travelling as well, with the games and the qualifiers, which he does. I remember, we had we had Scott McDonald as well uh, playing for Celtic. You know, a little centre forward. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we know Scotty uh, Mack was a good striker, Scotty. Yeah. Um, you know, so going back to Tom Rogic, I, I'm not just saying it because he's you guys and it's, you know, you're Australian, Ollie, but um, he's a terrific player. I have a lot of respect for him. But, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I look at him now and I look at the same Rogic I was seeing in the Brendan. Mm. You know, he's just not that as dynamic, but maybe that's a lack of games, you know, a lack of starting games. Maybe it's confidence from himself, but he's certainly a big player in the group. And uh, I just hope. He can recapture, you know, that type of form that he showed a couple of years ago. But he's back fit now, which is good for him. And he looks to be enjoying himself. There was a period where he was linked with a move away. And sometimes that can affect your form as well. Um, but no, fantastic player. And he's, he's idolised by the Celtic faithful. Um, John, 2006, you leave Celtic. Tough, tough thing to do. Yes, it was. But... Um, I was going through a personal 
um, battle with my divorce, which which is not not easy. Um, I really suffered with that. Um, I was losing my fitness a little bit. I, I felt as if, um, you know, I'd run my race in Glasgow. Um, Brian Robson had had had, uh, had, had conversations with um, with Gordon Strachan about taking me to West Brom, and uh, Gordon Strachan ended up just going down a different route altogether. He signed Kenny Miller and Scott McDonald, and he wanted to change the way that he he set the team up. And I was allowed to leave. I was allowed to leave for West Brom. Uh, I loved going to West Brom. Brian Robson was somebody I'd always looked up to. Robbo signed myself and Kevin Phillips on the same day. Brought me from Celtic. He got Kevin Phillips from Aston Villa. And we had a good pre-season that, that, uh, when I first joined. And then I, I opened up. I scored two goals on my debut against Hull in the Championship. Robbo, we had Jonathan Green in, Zoltan Gira. We had some really good players uh, playing for us at that particular time. Nigel Quasi. And we fancy ourselves to go up through the championship, back into the Premier League. Brian said, I want you to just occupy that 18-yard box. You know, he said, I've got Green in and Gira. They can, you know, they, they can put balls on a six-punch, you know, from 30, 40 yards. Great talent. We'll get plenty of balls into the box. And um, Brian got the sack after six games, unfortunately. And then Tony Mowbray came in, a manager that I knew from Scotland. He managed Hibs. And... Um, Tony called me in one day and he basically said, yeah, uh, you won't play for me. He said, I, I, want, I want to play with quick, nimble strikers. So I thought, that's me out of the road then. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, you know, my time became difficult then at West Brom. Um, I found myself playing in the reserves and things like this. And six months prior to that, I was at the new camp playing against Barcelona. For yeah. I'm thinking, oh, you know... Um, and, and as well, I had a month on loan at Norwich. Jim Duffy was manager at Norwich. And uh, I went down to help West Brom out in terms of uh, the wages factor. I spent a month at Norwich. I uh, quite enjoyed it down there as well. I knew a few of the players. Darren Huckabee was there and Dion Dublin was there. One or two others. So I enjoyed that month at Norwich. And then I decided to retire. I was very young retiring, uh, 31 or something. Um, but I was happy with, with what I achieved. You know, a lot of players would have snapped my hand off to, to, to have had my career, the clubs that I played for and everything else and the moments that I had. But more importantly, um, I then became really ill. I, um, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd come into contact with cancer, testicular did cancer. You, sorry, John, did you know beforehand? Did you suspect something? I mean, I, I read, is it true, you, you first established probably four years earlier that you had a lump in your testicles, is that correct? And you and you kind of didn't go and yeah, get it checked one, out? One, one day, Mark, I chatted with my wife and um, I said, so have a look at this. And I showed her my, my scrotum and one of my testicles had like a, a big lump on my testicles. And she said, "You, how long has that been there? And I was like, a couple of years. And she's like, oh my goodness. She said, you're going to have to go and get that looked at. So I told her I was going to go and see, uh, he was a, I can't think of his name now, I think he was David something, the, the, the doctor at West Brom, I was going to go and see him. And I was going to go and get it checked, at least he could have sent me or he could have referred me to a hospital or you know, made an appointment. And I never went, I never went to see him. And I went home, my wife said, how did it go? And I went, no, I went fine, he said, it's no problem. But I told a white lie. Okay. Uh, and then in the meantime, the lump got bigger. It went from like a, I don't know, like a grape size into a, 
you know, uh, it was really like a big bean slide into a Maltese site, you know, size. And it was on the edge of my, one of my testicles. And it was clearly, and unbeknown to my knowledge, it was a tumour. It was a, it was a tumour that was cancerous. And it was spreading. It was spreading around my body. And I became, um, I put a lot of weight on around my chin. Um, I, uh, I was falling asleep sort of at the traffic lights. Um, if I sit there and it was light and I'd put the brake on, I'd be like that. And my wife couldn't understand why I needed so much sleep in one day. I was coming home, I was sleeping all the time. Um, and in the end, I, I was diagnosed with testicular that cancer that spread to my lungs and onto my brain. So I was uh, taken into hospital. I had tests and, and everything else. I had, um, you know, I took emergency brain operations, um, several sessions of chemotherapy. Um, it, it was a horrific time, you know, because I, I was in desperate trouble because I'd allowed it to spread. It was all over my body, the cancer at one stage. And I had an operation there and at the back, um, I had a shunt put in there, which is still there. And then I entered into a chemotherapy program, which through the grace of God, you know, I got stronger and I got stronger and I managed to come through it uh, against all the odds, really, because at one stage it, it was looking very, very bleak, you know, as if I was going to, you know, I nearly passed away uh, at times. And the family, everybody was there, really worried. It, it, it was out in the press and everything that John Hartson is fighting for his life, you know. I went onto a, onto a life support machine. Um, and then I had a big programme uh, to adhere to when I left hospital. I had to enter into a chemotherapy programme um, and just, just hope for the best and hope that, you know, luck and God was on my side and he'd give me another chance. And through the grace of God, I managed to come through that. And that was, that was just over 10 years ago now. Um, so... You know, as I said, I came through that. I was very, very blessed. You know, we know lots of people don't come through it. And I don't know how I did it, really. I don't know how I got through it because it's very difficult to say, is it luck? Um, is it positivity? I know the chemotherapy, my body reacted really well to the chemo, um, the chemotherapy. I don't know if you know, but it's the chemo is meant to kill all the red cancer cells. Lance Armstrong's book, he's, he's on his hands and knees, nagging the, the nurses and the doctors, pleading for more chemo because he knows it's saving his life. But what it also does, it eats away at your nice white shiny yeah. cells that keep you alive. So what happens is then it eats away at your immune system. Those white cells, they're your immune system. They keep you alive. They go all around your body. They're beautiful, shiny white cells. But these horrible cancer cells, that's what the chemo attacks. But it attacks both because it doesn't stop for no one, the chemo. And that's when you get side effects and that's why you feel ever so down uh, with chemotherapy. It's, it's, it's a horrible thing to, to, to be involved in. But ultimately, it's, it's killing the cancer. Mm -hmm. But it's also killing them other whites that keep you alive. You know? So my immune system was down. There was a period in hospital where I couldn't stop coughing. And they actually thought I caught pneumonia on the ward. They actually thought it was the pneumonia that was going to kill me, not, not, to, not the cancer. Um, and they were putting towels up to my face. I could not stop coughing. And for whatever reason, I stopped. 
So that was a life changer for me, really. I don't know why I stopped, but you know. Um, and there was lots of other things and things happened while I was in hospital and, um, you know, things that probably personal and, th- you know, my kids couldn't come into the, into the ward because of risk of infection. I only had to name three people that could come to my bedside, which wasn't very nice. Watching my kids outside the room, you know, it was, wasn't a very nice period of my life. But I managed to come through it, and um, I'm, I'm eternally grateful and appreciative of the fact that I was able to, uh, you know, still be around, really, to watch my children grow up. And it, it's totally changed me. It's totally changed me as a person. You know, it's, um, it's the simple things now. Like yesterday, I was up at a beach, just up near North Berwick, just walking along the beach with my kids. And, just enjoying the fresh air and sucking in the air off the beach, you know, that sea salt. And we all had a great sleep last night. We were up there for about an hour. Um, and it's just things like that, things that, you know, maybe I took for granted, you know, before, um, which you can never get them things back, you know. It's one hell of a story and an incredible message that I hope a lot of young guys, you know, get to listen to. But can, can I ask when, you know, we, we get told a lot now and, and I feel like, I've noticed since I was sort of entering, you know, into my, about to enter my early thirties, you know, the message is there to check, but when you find a lump, what, what was the decision making there to, to not act on it? Was it because of where it was or was there a broader well, reason? I'll tell you what it was. It was because I was unaware that lumps on my testicles are, are on your testicles are a big telltale sign of testicular cancer. Yeah. Now, they could be lumps, they could be cysts, they could be anything. But generally, if you've got a lump on your testicle inside your scrotum, it's, it's a big sign that there's something there that shouldn't be there. And potentially, it could spread. And that's what happened to me. That's what left me in big trouble. And yes, I was ignorant. I admit that. I was ignorant of my own health. So my message to people is, don't do as I did. Do as I say. It's imperative that you get them checked right away. Because if you get your testicles checked, if you feel a lump, what will happen is you'll go into hospital, they'll give you a scan, they'll remove that testicle where the tumour is on. You won't have to have any chemotherapy. You'll stop it from spreading. And you won't go through all the rigmarole and everything that I went through, the panic, the worry, the stress, the nearly costing me my, my life if you get it early and any illness you get diagno- an early diagnosis you stand a 10 times better chance of it spreading of recovering from it you know the longer you leave it um, and in particular with cancer because it can spread you know it s- spreads quite heavily um, so the answer to your question is I was doing everything I was doing everything with the lump on my testicle I was fathering kids. I was training every day. I was scoring goals. I was moving from club to club. My life was no different. I was exactly the same, but I had a lump on my testicle. And then it just gradually got bigger over the years. And as I said to you earlier, it became quite large. And then sort of psychologically, maybe I maybe thought, I might get bad news here. I might get bad news from a doctor at West Brom. I just give it a miss. I just give it a miss. Mm. And then from there, it started to really sort of, uh, you know, 
prey really heavily on me then in terms of spreading headaches, put weights on, tired. Um, and if I hadn't got to hospital when I did, I'd have probably died in my sleep. I'd have probably died if I hadn't got into hospital and got it so, all sorted. So the answer is you are spot on. Why, why didn't I go and get it checked early? I don't know. I was very ignorant. I was very stupid, very naive. Should have got it checked. Um, it could nearly have turned out to be a disaster for me. I was lucky. I was blessed to have got through all my troubles. Um, but the key message for me is I've wrote a book. I do loads of these type of things. I've been on television explaining testicular. There's always a testicular cancer week or a month throughout the year. I appear on different shows. And I plead with young men generally in between the ages of 17 and 35. You know, that's, that's what it is. And there's a 95%... 98% success rate in testicular cancer with men if you, get the, if you get it diagnosed early. So the key messages are go to see your GP, go to see your doctor, don't do as I did, you know, do as I say. Go and get yourself checked out, go to hospital and you'll have the testicle, which you get that whipped out. You can still create the same amount of sperm with one testicle as you can with two testicles. You can still, you know, become part of fatherhood, it doesn't stop you having kids, um, you know, so that's my message, that's my key message, really. don't do as I did, do as I say. Um, I said earlier on when I introduced you, you had, you've had an amazing career, um, you've had some in, insane things happen to you, you've been through various things throughout your whole career, and this is not it, that's not it, that's not all of it, so you've struggled your entire career with uh, an addiction to gambling. Mm -hmm. When... When you, when you look back at it now, because at the time you, you don't realize you have a problem, I'm assuming that's why you continue to do what you're doing. At what point, when did you start? And then at what point did you think or know that you had a, had a gambling problem? Well, it's quite complicated, but when you, when, you, when you break it all down in GA with a fellowship, with a group, it becomes quite clear. It becomes a lot more clearer. You know, I always think clear mind, clear path. You've got a clear mind. Your path is very clear as well then, you know, rather than addictions and problems and dramas, you know what I mean? You clear all that and you get a clear path to everything. It just goes, that's what happens, you know? And that's what happened to me with the gambling. It, was, uh, it started very, very young when I used to watch my father play a lot. My father played at semi-pro and I was always on the bus with my dad and following him five, six, seven years of age. And, um, and after the games, when he played at home for a Welsh team, they used to have these little strips. You could buy three for like two pound. My father would buy me pop and crisps. He'd have a couple of pints with the lads, with the teammates and that. I had a pop and Chris, so I'd be five or six years of age, and I'd just sit in the corner, you know, just, there'd be other kids there, other players, the, the senior team would have kids, or I'd be kicking the ball about, round the back somewhere. And you could buy these little tickets, these little fruits that it was. So behind the ticket, there was three fruits, like an apple, a strawberry, a banana, grapes, whatever. And if they matched, you'd, you'd win sort of 50 pence or something like that. Or, you know, you, you'd win a, a free glass of Coke, or a, I don't know. And I used to nag my dad all the time. I'd be, I'd be there. I'd be a little small little kid. And I'd be there, Daddy, can I have on Monday? I want more strips, I want more strips. 
And I think it leads off from there. That little wanting to win, um, just peeling them off and seeing what's behind the... And it's crazy to think I can go back 40 years to when I'm five years of age. That's where my first experience of... People would say, well, it's not gambling, John. Well, it is gambling. Lottery is gambling. You know, um, raffle tickets is gambling. You're buying something. You're doing good. You're putting something into a charity. But you're doing that to try and win something. Yeah. That's the same thing as going to a bookies and backing a horse. You're trying to win money or a dog or whatever, a greyhound. So that's when it started. And then when I was 16, I had a wonderful opportunity to start my career. I got asked to go up to Luton, 300 miles away from Swansea, where I lived, to become an apprentice, to start, start on my football. So it was always a dream. Very determined. I didn't want to go back. I wasn't homesick. I wanted to make it. In my mind, I wasn't going home. I was always going to make it. I was always going to get on somehow. Um, I had the right attitude, you know, which to succeed. Um, and then I, I made this big, big area. I, I, I stole from a teammate at Luton, and um, and I got suspended from the club. But this addiction was so strong. Uh, the club decided to take me back so initially that could have ruined my career that should have been enough for me to stop wasn't enough because addictions are ridiculously strong they're so hard to break to break down and get clean um and and you know if you're an addict the lengths you would go to get a drink if you're an alcoholic or if you're searching for drugs. In my case, it was gambling, you know, the lengths that addicts go um, because they're addicts. They're not bad people. They're ill. They're not well. And I wasn't well for many years with the gambling. Um, So then I got taken back. They gave me a second chance. Then my career just flew from there. And I always gambled. At all the clubs I was at, I always gambled. Whether it but was it was a golf. cultural thing, wasn't it? Because I remember when I came to England. Yeah, but not everybody States. gambled. Not everybody so, gambled. I know, I know it was a cultural thing. I know, I know there was a lot of you know black market gambling as well, where you had the private bookmakers. You didn't have to gamble through Ladbrokes or, or William Hills or Sunderland's or Stan James or all these different companies. Um, generally, you know, it was a bookies on the corner down the road, an unlicensed bookmaker where you could gamble or whatever and not everybody gambled you know lots of people did but lots of people didn't as well people were wiser they buy property they, they put money into their pension you know they they um but it was always something that started and i never i never got treatment i never got i never spoke about it and it, it's something that if you're a gambler gamblers listening to this if you're a gambler and you're gambling every week you will end up skint and you will never stop gambling unless you get therapy, unless you go to GA, Gamblers Anonymous. And I quickly realized that because I thought I could just stop. And I did stop for periods. I did stop for six months. And I did stop for eight months, you know, when my wife would say to me, oh, look, you know, I would stop. Um, but I'd always get drawn back. I'd always get drawn back, you know. And now I'm 10 years. I'm 10 years without a bet. 2009 was my but the turning point was in 2009 because the turning point was um i'd been out i was in swansea i'd come out i'd come out of hospital and um while i was in hospital 
This is after your the whole cancer. Yeah, this was treatment. after. Yeah, because while I was in hospital, um, my wife couldn't pay the bills, my car, everything, the direct debits and food and things like that. Yes, she had money to buy food. Yeah, you know, but um, generally, you know, and good friend of mine went round the house and he lent her some money. And when I came out of the hospital, and this is John Hartson, who lives in his career, you know, living in a house in Wales and. And when I come out, she explained to me that what had happened, you know, and you'd think that would be enough for me to say, I won't bet again. You know, I just spent six weeks in hospital. My wife was heavily pregnant um, with Stephanie, my third daughter. Um, and you think that would be enough. You think that would be, you know, my wife telling me that she's, she stood by my bed every night when I was in hospital, watched me sleep there for everything I needed. Her husband was literally dying on, on, on the bed, you know, wires and tubes coming through everywhere, you know, and she was sitting there pregnant with two kids at home. You know, when she explained to me, it was like, right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I continued to gamble. Unbelievable, I continued to gamble. That's how strong an addiction gambling is. And it's rife. There are millions of people out there struggling, taking their lives through gambling, through debt, everything else. Um, and then what happened was about three or four months then down the line, I was still gambling every penny I had. Um, I'd been out on a particular afternoon session with a couple of friends and I'd slept at a three-story house. I'd slept on the middle floor. My wife was on the top floor. The bedroom was on the top floor, but I'd gone in the other spare room. Um, and I can hear banging in the morning. I can hear banging almost like just what's that? Thud, eight o'clock in the morning. And it was my wife pulling the suitcases down the stairs. Bang, 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 you know, just by the wheels, you know. And then she just came in the bedroom and she said, John, I, um, I booked a flight. She said, That's it. She said, I can't, I can't hang around. She said, I love you so much. She said, What you're putting yourself through, she says, is killing me. It's killing me, she said, and it's killing you. She said, I shit, your stress, your moods. She said, and I put up with it for so long. She said, um, I think so much of you. She said, I cannot sit back and watch you do this anymore. She said, so I booked a flight and I'm going this afternoon with the girls and me. She was seven or eight months pregnant. She was on the cusp of being able to fly. Um, and I just broke down. I broke down in tears. I was on my hands and knees, pleading with her to not to go. I'll change. Um, I won't gamble. And she, she just, she'd had enough. And I'd had enough. That was my moment. That was my moment where they say, you hit rock bottom. You have to hit rock bottom. And I was, I was there. Rock bottom. What do you do then? Who do you call? What do you do? Where do you go? Rock bottom. And she said to me, I want you to get on the phone and phone GA, Gamblers Anonymous, now. And I'm not doing it for you. Like I've done everything for you. Everything. Almost wiped your backside that time. Not doing it for you anymore. You do it and show me that you're serious about doing it. And I'd had enough. I'd had enough like of the I'd had enough of the lies, 
the deceit, you know, the just being an idiot, being stupid, being disrespectful, um, you know. And people used to say, you know, John, pull yourself together. I can't believe you go next door for the bed. And I, I just didn't listen. I just didn't listen because I was addicted. I was an addict. So I'd had enough as well. I'd had enough at that time. That was my rock bottom. I, I was ready. And uh, I phoned up a Swansea number, looked on the internet, and it was a meeting on that Sunday night in Swansea, seven o'clock till 8.30. And I phoned up and I said, hello. I said, I've got a bit of a problem. Um, I said, can I come to your meeting tonight? They said, absolutely. They said, we, we welcome all comers here. As long as you know, it's very private and confidential. Everything that happens in this room stays in the room. Um, you know, uh, can I take your name, please? And I said, yeah, it's just John, John. Okay, John, we'll see you tonight. So I went to my first meeting of GA, um, Gamblers Anonymous. And there were people in the room. It was like, just John. One looking at me as if I was John Hartson, the, the football star. Just John. David was there. Peter was there. Michael was there. Kerry was there. We're all the same. John's the same. John's there to get help. John's not the famous football player that everybody looks up to. He's a taxi driver. He's a builder. We all want the same. We all want the same, and that is to stop gambling. And we've come without our last sort of opportunity where you join a fellowship. All exactly the same people. All had divorces, done his money, spent his wedding money, lied to his missus, lied to his parents. We've all got problems in that room, and we're all... He's 28 years clean. He's seven years clean. He's four years clean. I'm one day clean. We're all the same. Nobody's different to anybody else in GA. That's what we are. We're addicts and we want to come together in a fellowship, in a group to discuss our problems and to do the 12 steps and to get through this addiction. And to this day, it's uh, nine and a half years and I've not bought one raffle ticket. I've not spent one pence on betting. And um, my life has just just gone from there just because I've stopped gambling. And of course, you're able to live in a nice house, and you're able to have nice holidays, you're able to you know, do nice things. But it's more my mental state, my focus, uh, my demeanor, my attitude, that's changed. And that's, that's what Sarah, that's what she wanted back. You know, she's from a council house. I'm from a council house. Um, I never played football for money. I played for the love of the game. You know, I always gambled it and helped people give money away, blah, blah, blah. But um, it's totally changed my life. Really, really has. Um, and I still go to GA twice a week here in Edinburgh. And I will continue to go until I'm 70 if I live that long, because what, what is an hour out of my life, two times a week? What is that if it's going to help me and if I can help other people coming in, new members? Because 10 years ago when I first went, somebody held their hand out to me. Mm. I needed help. I needed guidance. I needed a lift. I needed a kick at the backside. I needed to learn. I needed to restructure everything about gambling. I needed to raise it from my world. The realisation oh, I can never go to a racetrack again. The realisation I can never walk into a bookmaker's again. 
the realization that I can't have a bet on a golf course again with my mates. Done, gone, finito. Gambling doesn't exist in my world anymore. You know, that is the, is the key to it all. And I managed to do it. And, um, you know, that, that's my gambling experience, you know. You know, you're, you're, you're a credit to yourself, to your family, um, you know, your beautiful wife and, and children. Um, remarkable, mate, how you've turned things around. You survived cancer, deathbed. I mean, wonderful career. I mean, that, that kind of takes a back seat, you know. It, it, it's still an amazing career, and I want to give that justice, and I hope we've, we've been able to touch on various things in your career. But what you've come through from a personal perspective, um, health, and obviously the addiction, the gambling, the illness that you have, um, to see you in such a great place these days is, is wonderful to see. And, and, you know, hopefully it continues for a long, long time. Thank you, Mark. Cheers, Ollie. Thanks, boys. Won't be long, I promise. Back to Ollie and Mark in just 15 seconds. If you enjoy Two Sharp Reds, though, make sure you search The Gig and Pod wherever you get your podcasts. David Weiner is joined by thousands of games of experience both on and off the field. It's a great listen. G-E-G-E-N-P-O-D, The Gig and Pod. Okay, back to Two Sharp Reds. Drinks break here on the Two Sharp Reds. Mark, what a, what a story that was from John. Unbelievable. Which one? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great point. You just sit back and you go, you feel like you've not lived in comparison. Like that is just an extraordinary tale. Oh, it, it, it's just insane to think about. I mean, you know, you, I played against John Hartson. You, you, you hear little stories in the background, you, you see little headlines, but to actually listen to him and, and hear him talk about the challenges he's faced throughout his whole career on and off the football pitch, more importantly off the pitch in terms of health and then the addiction to gambling that, let's be honest, will never go away. It'll be a constant battle for the rest of his life. And um, it's amazing to see him in such a good place right now. And was able to turn down Arsene Wenger. Let's not turn, forget. Turn lest we forget, Wenger. Mark. Amazing, yeah? Missed out on the double because he went to West Ham. Highly. Right, let's, uh, let's talk about our wine. Um, because we're, we've now, I suppose we've technically crossed over the period from, it was the festive period. Now we need to look forward to the New Year's period, which I don't know about you, but it's a slightly different drink for me. You know, I might be, uh, you know, because I have been having the mulled and the Shiraz for the, you know, the, the nice dinners. Now it's time to start going into my Pinots. Who knows? Maybe even white, maybe even rosé. Wow. See, so I, I, I had the mulled wine, loved it. I yeah. so loved it on Christmas Day, drinking mulled wine. It was so delicious. Um, slices of orange in it, beautiful. Yep. That went did down you, a Did treat. you use uh, Rioja or what, what sort well, of... We actually cheated a bit this year because we had some bottles from a couple of years ago that we just never drank. Right. And we went, you know what, let's use it. Let's not chuck it away, let's use it. And it actually was really, really nice. So it was pre-made in a bottle already. Um, but in wine bottles, it was not plasticky bottle, whatever. It was a, it was a decent, it was a good brand uh, from one of the biggest supermarkets. And we just added a few bits and pieces to it and it was so delicious. Um, and then onto various bottles of red wine throughout the night. And I have to say, I did finish off with a couple of nightcaps. Did you? Yeah. A couple of scotches and dry at the end of the night. Really? Oh, yes. look out. My favourite. So I've gone out for today, just what part of my leftover wines from the festive period, uh, with the Roaring Beach Pinot Noir. I think next week I'm going to try and track down, um, I believe it's called The Devil's Corner, if you've had that one from Tassie. Cause I've heard of it, yes. Yeah, it's a really good one, but it's normally the main red for the Taste of Tasmania, which I know we've talked about before, that 
week period there, but it's um that's been called off this year. So I might try and track down a Devil's Corner in celebration of the taste. But I've gone for the Roaring Beach Pinot Noir 2018 from the rugged coastline in Tasmania. I reckon, honestly, uh, I mean, it's the Tamar Valley area, but that coastline, um, it would be the vineyard, and that is about it. That is really? all that would be there. Yeah, wow. stunning. Can't wait. One day, we'll go there. Love to go there. I've been wanting yep. to go to Tasmania again. I've been there once when I was like 14 years old. Haven't been again since. Not, not, the, not the age you want to be visiting Tassie either, I'll no, be honest. No, <laughs> We were built it out. We are playing a, a state championships down there. But um, the food, the wine, the history, the countryside, everything about it, I'd love to go. I'd love my to spend house. some serious time there. You know, where I was, my family home. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Just if the landmarks. Yeah. If you invite me, of course. If I, uh, what, what have you gone for again, Mark? I've gone for an Ernst Lucen Pinot Noir 2018. It's from a German wine of all places, and it's from the Pfalz. Uh, area which is where um, all encompass an area like Kaiserslautern where I used to play in Germany back in 96 95 96 um, and it's it's quickly becoming one of Germany's flagship wine styles and and for that reason alone um, you know it, it obviously lends me towards a German player of course and you know balance um, it's smooth um, and, and the fact that it's a flagship wine style, um, this is something that uh, at the moment he's probably not hitting his strap. Well, he's definitely not hitting the straps that, or the levels that we expected him to, uh, but there have been quite high expectations on him. Um, but he is still a fantastic player and they've got no doubt it won't be long before he starts to, to find the back of the net more regularly and becomes a big, big player for, for Chelsea. Um, so there's two players I could pick from, really, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Think, I've got you thinking right now, haven't I? I think um, I know. I'm going to go for but... the, the, the cheaper of the two, Timo Werner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think he, he really is uh, kind of that new sort of style German player, flagship wi- uh, style to match this flagship wine style. So what you're saying is pretty good, but just a really average finish. Um, no, no, no. It's, it's a nice, smooth finish. Um, but he's he's just slightly gone off that at the moment. Yeah, he'll get there. He will. In fairness to him, he's gone. All, he gets into all the right areas. It's he just certainly last does. Last little bit. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. with you. Uh, well, uh, I like it. Good, good, good um, person there. But mine's been quite simple um, for my Roaring Beach Pinot Noir. Uh, the wine itself, natural acidity, incredibly natural, coming from a very cool climate. Both uh, with this player does come from a cooler climate, but also cool the way he plays very calm delicate flavors delicate um i'd say he hits the ball you know you know he's got a he's got a really big kick but he seems like a a delicate human being a really big kick you talk about talk about kids like he's playing under 12s at local football ground oh yeah how good is he he's got a really big kick He's got a really fierce strike. How about okay, that? Okay, thank you. But he's got. But he strikes me as a very delicate person. Okay. Uh, and then the final thing is they they do say uh, the Roaring Beach is of the highest of quality, and I believe that that man is certainly in that category at the moment. And I'm going to give it to Tottenham Hotspurs' Ming Song. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got to give you Happy that. With that? Right. You, you did laugh halfway through. I think I was thinking you you made an assumption quite early on. No, you laughed. No, it looked like you knew you who I was going. No, 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 I just bluffed you all the way through. Uh, this, uh, I suppose, uh, our next podcast, uh, it'll be 
in the new year. Yeah. 2021. I, mean, I think we should take a break now. We won't do our next podcast until next year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yes. one, of us had to, one of us had to sneak it in, didn't we? Of course. And it was always one of us me, had... let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, yeah. I can't wait. 2020, we can be done with you because 2021 in the world of the world, but also the world of the two sharp reds, uh, there's going to be some big things, some big guests, some exciting moments. Well, cheers to John. Cheers to you. Cheers to our listeners. Cheers to everyone at Optus Sport. And I guess we'll see you in the new year, Mark. And let's just hope for a better year than this crappy 2020 has been. I tell you what, we'd have to be doing pretty well for it to be worse. Wouldn't like seriously, something monumental would have to go wrong. So I think we'll yeah. be all right. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Oh, and if you are enjoying the podcast, make sure you do leave a review because you know often Mark will will come to me and go, look, no one's left a review. You know, do do they like my stuff? You know, he he really thrives on that kind of thing. So please, uh, yeah, please leave a review and a comment on all your favourite platforms if you are enjoying the Two Sharp Reds.